You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Diaspora Blues acknowledges this show is presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome back to another week of Diaspora Blues on 3CR Community Radio. My name's Ayan Shirwa and my co-host, the fabulous Bigwa Chol, is in Ghana still. She'll be back shortly and we do miss her heaps um we hope you had an amazing weekend i know i did not do a lot i watched netflix as you do and read a bit and what else did i get up to um that's about it um i think during the time of covid19 there's not much to do other than staying alive which i'm doing a pretty good job of it um but last week serious meerkat and I had the absolute, and I mean the absolute pleasure of chatting with Heritier Lumumba. Um, but before we go any further, maybe it's important to sort of let our listeners know that this interview isn't about Lumumba's fight to hold the AFL and Collingwood accountable. So if that's what you're here for, you might want to skip this episode. We decided instead to focus on conversations around joy, community and culture because those are just as important. Don't get me wrong, the hardships should be noted and discussed. But we wanted to do something different for this episode. So the interview is in two portions. So in the first segment, we chat with Lumumba about his time in Perth, which I did not know about, how he got started in football and connecting with the Brazilian community in Melbourne. And then later on, we get into more meatier stuff. We hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Lumumba. Thank you so much. This this has been much anticipated on my end, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Ditto, ditto. The feelings mutual. So let us begin from the beginning, which is your parents, right? So your father's from the Democratic Republic of Congo and your mother is from Brazil. Growing up, were you always aware of your parents' rich history? I wouldn't say I was always aware of the richness of the history and I, I, and I definitely didn't appreciate it, um, you know, anywhere near to um, how I did once I really started to engage on the journey consciously to physically go back to back to Brazil and to back to the Congo as well. Yeah, I would say that my understanding of the significance was limited uh, throughout my childhood. 
that's definitely something that we're going to get into a bit further in the interview. So looking at what it was like to travel back to Brazil. But sticking to the early days, you grew up in Perth. What was it like growing up in Perth as a little African kid? Oh, man. Growing up, I'd say growing up in Perth was, I think it's easy for me to gravitate towards the negative experiences, but I'll start with, you know, the things that I love about Perth. What I loved about Perth was the the land, really, like the outdoor lifestyle. There's masses of water, like the Swan River, which I had access to growing up. You know, I, was, I grew up swimming in the river, fishing in the river, um, so many amazing memories by the river and then also the amazing coastlines as well, which um, some of the most beautiful beaches, I think, in Australia or within Australian cities are there. So I was really fortunate. I had an outdoor lifestyle. The sun was always shining. I was playing sports. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned, being a, a, a um, an African child in an overwhelmingly white um, society, which I was in, uh, it was came with a lot of challenges and looking back on it I probably well I definitely didn't recognize how severe some of the challenges were that I was facing but I was able to see and I am able to see how um, the difficulties that I had in my childhood affected me into my adulthood you know and very uh, very much a part of my journey in adulthood was um, working through the challenges that I had, you know, in my childhood. So going on that journey and finding a sense Mm -hmm. of, finding a sense of strength in identity Mm. um, has been a lifelong mission for me. Mm, It's heavy, isn't it? The sort of like that burden of the double consciousness, you know, you, you have a duality of experience at home, you're a certain way and then out in public, it's a certain way. And there's the good and the bad, and it sort of draws you to other forms of escape, like like you were saying, playing sport. Um, how did you get into football? Yeah, I got into football from, I'd say, biggest influence was my stepfather. He's no longer with us. Uh, he passed away in 2009. But he was instrumental in me um, having a connection to the game. It was because he was obsessed with, uh, with Essendon. And he was a, a white Australian who, yeah, who very much encouraged me to play football. And growing up in that type of household where, I, you know, I wasn't with my father, I was with my stepfather um, and had very little contact with my father throughout my childhood. I would say that a way of me to feel a sense of connection and to actually feel um, what it would be like for a father to be proud of me was done all through sport and more specifically through football. So that's how I, I guess that's how I got in was, I would say he was probably one of the biggest influences. The other influence as well was just being at school. That's what the kids were doing. You know, that was, that's what was popular. Kids were playing at, you know, in re- mm-hmm. at recess at lunchtime. And I was a gifted athlete from early on. And the game was just, I guess, made for the attributes that I had. So that's how, um, that's how I got into it. My favorite sport was basketball growing up. Like I really, yeah, I played more basketball than I did football. Yeah. Just the way it panned out for me. I wasn't, I wasn't able to juggle all of the different sports that I liked. So I, Mm -hmm. I just stuck with football. 
and then you grow up, got a bit older, it might be hard to remember Lumumba, but can you remember the first time that you traveled back home? And by back home, I mean Brazil. Um, you mean as an adult or? Just the first time, because I'm not really sure what that was like. I just assumed you went back when you were an adult, but did you go back as a kid as well? I did, yeah, I did. I went, um, so I spent about, it was about 12 years without going back to Brazil, actually without leaving Australia. I think I went back when I was five and then again when I was seven, perhaps. Mm. And those memories were, they were like, I, I still have some vivid and, you know, really clear memories from going back. You know, I remember like the weather, like the humidity. I remember um, like just the different smells and, and the different sounds and, mm. you know, architectural differences and family and whatnot. Um, but like I said, I spent, almost 12 years without going back. So when I did eventually go back, it was um, when I had become a professional in football and I was living away from home. So um, yeah, I got the chance to go back when I was independent. And you know that was a profound experience just because I was able to really see the, the stark difference between Australian society that I was in and and the Brazilian society that I had left. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. When you did go back, did you immerse yourself immediately? Was it something that you could connect to organically or did it take a while to sort of be like, okay, I remember this place, this place is home? No, I I would say that uh, when I moved from Perth to Melbourne, to pursue football, I, w- I was able to connect immediately when I got to Melbourne within the, the Brazilian community. And um, one of the things that was absent in my time in Perth was, was the Brazilian community. But the first time, when we first got to Australia, so I was, it was just after I'd turned two, I was about two and a half years old, um, I, like my family, we were very much immersed in the Brazilian community in Melbourne. So that was for four years and then we moved to Perth. So me going back to Melbourne was me being reacquainted and reconnecting with my, with the Brazilian community. And I I found it was a, an escape for me in many ways from the, the environment that I was in in football. I was able to, to go into a space where no one, gave a damn like who, what I did or what I played. You know, they didn't, they didn't even care about Australian was football. And I was speaking Portuguese, so a completely different language, obviously, to the language that I was being exposed to at football. By the time I went back later on, after, after having already spent a year immersed in the Brazilian community, it just felt like an extension of that. So I was able to really slot in into the rhythm of things uh, early. Mm, the feeling of sort of like finding home again. Yeah, definitely. It was yeah, that was that was exactly it. Like being able to to go somewhere that felt so familiar, you know, like not just um because I would I'd been immersed in the Brazilian community, but my earliest childhood memories, you know, when you're when you're even though I was two and a half when I'd left. Like my son's not even two now, you know, and I know for a fact that 
the places where he spends his time and you know the things that he's been exposed to absolutely will have an impact on him when he's my age like there's, there's no doubt about it so I can only absolutely. imagine yeah I can only imagine what that first two and a half years did to me in terms of you know forming the person that I am today. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Lumumba. We're going to play a quick CSA and when we come back, we'll hear more from this legend. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You're tuned into Diaspora Blues on 3CR Community Radio. We've been chatting with Heritier Lumumba. We played the first half of the interview. Now we're going to get into the second half. So in this half, he looks at an interesting concept or a tradition that I had never heard of, which is called the matrifocal family structure. And he'll get into that. He'll also look at why names matter and what brings him joy. Absolutely. And I think that it shapes you because I, in a previous interview, you talked about how the community there was sort of more matrifocal. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that and explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the community um, that I was born into, um, at the t- so at the time when I was born, um, so my mom was the was a director at, at the within this community that the name of is Jongo Bassin Dasehia, and it is a community that's preserved traditions that pretty much traveled across the Atlantic during the tra- transatlantic slave trade. It's a, it's a black community and the way in which the community's traditions are preserved is all done through the authority of, I guess they call it matriarch, but I, I, st- I move away from calling it matriarchy because it's really matrifocal in, mm. in the fact that the women um, don't necessarily hold a position of superiority in, in the sense that patriarchy does, but is more just known as and respected as the guardians of um, of the traditions and the culture. Mm, words words matter, don't they? I really like the distinction you made between matrifocal and matriarchy. Um, I've been actually wanting to ask, any relation to the first Congolese prime minister? You probably well, get asked this a lot. Yeah. No, I do. Well, you know what? Funnily enough, in Australia, no, because <laughs> people don't, people, people's... Um, I guess the association to Lumumba is that it sounds like um, that song La Bamba. So mm. uh, that, that's literally, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, definitely amongst Africans. So yeah, so my father's journey was as, um, as an orphan. He was orphaned from when he was, um, where well, he lost his mom when he was less than two, lost his father when he was, before he was nine. So he was very much a, a child that, had to fend for himself in many degrees without the love of his family. And um, when it came to his name, he had never understood you know, why he had the name Lumumba. And he's been on a journey himself, unfortunately. You know, he hasn't gotten to the root of that. But I can tell you that 
I have been in direct contact with various members of the Lumumba family and as my father has. And, you know, where there's a lot within um, the, the legacy of Patrice Lumumba, the, the, the you know, the, the assassinated prime minister um, that unfortunately hasn't yet been surfaced. And um, put it this way, it's, it's something that we're, we're working through at the moment to, to really get to the bottom of how do we end up with his name? Like we understand that a lot of people later on in later years um, adopted the name and, and chose that name. But as far as we know, like that was my, you know, my father's name. So um, yeah, we're, we're on a journey to understand. And I guess that's the journey of, um, it is a journey of an orphan who is a refugee. So. Yeah, in, in due course, I'm sure we'll f get to the bottom of it. But no, I can't, I can't confirm that I am um, a, a blood relative, but I absolutely have been in contact with family members and, we, and some of them I speak regularly with. So mm. just the fact that I ha have a direct connection is you mm. know, powerful enough for me to give me the significance for what the name actually means. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, it's just sort of this idea of, you know, veneration of the ancestors through names. Um, and, you know, it's it's really important that we, almost like incantations, right? So mm. thank you for sharing that. Um, and just um, talking on the names as well, you know, I, it reminds me of this idea of when we talk about colonization, it's, you know, not only as a means of dominance, but erasure, right? So we have, you know, erasure of culture, as well as language. You know, I remember when I first came to Australia, um, my name was given all sorts of nicknames and it made me interested to know the story behind your name. When did you change your name back um, to Lumumba? I so I changed that back in 2014, January 2014. Although like it wasn't, it was a decision that took several years to get to, you know, before signing the paper. But mm. you know, several years before that, I, I was already it got to a point where the name um, Harry O'Brien, whenever I saw it or whenever I heard people say it, it would just, it would bring me a level of discomfort just because I fully understood of how it had evolved to that, you know, so, and what that represented, which was, I guess, the, um, the I think the best word for it would be acquiescence, you know, like just, um, it would be, uh, un, like un, almost silently um, disapproving, but in that silence, you, you allow it to take place. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how it was in the end for me, especially towards the last few years where I carried the surname O'Brien. But yeah. the name, the, my, original, my original name got changed. Like, so my surname went from Lumumba to O'Brien. Um, when I was nine and that was done so it was 1995 and you know I could I don't want to go into the story behind, like the full story behind it but my mom had changed um, my mom and my stepfather who was my guardian obviously at the time um. they thought it was within my best interest to have carry the same name as the rest of my family surname as the rest of my family that I was with at the time and um, like I said I won't go into the details but mm. within it 
um, you know, there's a, there's a history of domestic violence. There's history of, um, as you mentioned, colonialism. The history of mm. um, a refugee coming from a refugee background, and um, all within that, I think, for me to for me to understand all of those factors, it took literally um, up until um, you know till I was probably 24, 25, when I really started to develop a worldview, become more politically mature and understand mm. exactly the implications of that name change on my sense of self-worth and self-esteem mm. and also how the, the outer world was, re- the, the world that I was in was relating with me. So correcting my name and reclaiming my name, which is a beautiful and powerful name. It was um, such a monumental um, moment in my life. And to this day, you know, that moment and the name itself, just as when I see it, when I hear it, as I said, people here call me Lumumba. And every time they say it, it just straight away connects me to, um, to the history of the Congo. It connects me to, you know, a resistance to um, colonialism and imperialism. Mm, and here, here you are, you know, having this, this, you know, freeing and empowering experience of reclamation. And on, on the other side, so to speak, the public had a different reaction. What was the response at the time when, um, when you reclaimed your name? Oh man, it was, that was challenging. Like it was really challenging in that. Um, yeah, and I knew I knew what was going to come my way as well. But mm-hmm. it was on various levels. You know, it was um, it was there were some people that were that I who were close uh, within me who re- even refused to say it. You know, refused. They, mm-hmm. they some of them would say, "No, nah, we'll still call you Harry." You know, and I had to I had to go through. Um, the tedious task of correcting people all the time. You know, in Collingwood, the Collingwood Football Club has so many supporters. So every every time I would be on the street or um, at practice, for example, when there were fans, they'd all be calling me Harry, Harry. And, I, and it was just so tiring, you know, to say, no, no, that's not my name. That's not my name. That's not my name. And that was just, it was, it was just consistent, like daily, you know, people calling me out of my name, people asking me, like ha- me having to justify, or people asking me to justify why I had to, ch- why I did that. Um, people purposely mispronounce- mispronouncing it um, just to mm-hmm. generate um, a laugh. You know, I had the media as well totally misconstrue the reasons behind it and also being completely unaware of, um, you know, the, the cultural significance of it and I, I could just I could just keep going on so yeah. I knew I knew what I was up against I didn't understand I didn't know exactly you know what that would look like but I just knew that doing what I did was very much drawing a line in the sand and I knew that just off of the name itself that like I would be attracting a certain type of attention and certain types of attacks which which have been sustained even up until this day. Right. And I can only imagine, obviously, you've sort of touched on it, but it sounded like a difficult 
thing to be up against, especially if you feel like you're on your own. But I'm guessing you weren't on your own. So I know you touched on having the support of the Brazilian community, but when it comes to the Congolese community or generally speaking, the African community, were there people in Melbourne that you sort of connected with who kind of took you under their wings? Um, well, there were definitely um, so many different uh, individuals and there were so many different people or communities that I could go to for support, absolutely. Um, but I do have to say that given the unique nature of the challenges that I was facing, like in terms of being a pro footballer and the media, like dealing with the media, and I guess like the this, this structural aspects of the racism I was facing, um, I felt um, quite alone in that, in the sense that I couldn't really go to anyone that had experiences with the unique challenges that I was facing. I mean, people obviously face discrimination, like racial discrimination, like anti-African um, discrimination right. like all the time. Like that's, that's a given. But when it came to, um, I guess, the unique challenge of it being in sport and then also having to manage the, 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 the PR aspect of it, like that was really tricky. But no, I, I got, I had a lot of support, you know, in terms of like moral support. I had a lot of support. I was really fortunate. And it was always the, um, it, the common theme was that um, it was, it was the women in the community that were creating the spaces, you know, generating, generating culture, bringing people together. I think of um, sister, you know, sister and the Pan-African um, poets, Oh um, uh, yes, Sister Zai. Yes. Yeah, like man, she that she I I love like that was just for mm. me like to for me to be able to go into that into those space into that space and to express myself like I remember doing spoken word and I just I just because I just needed to express what I had within me you know and and I just couldn't in the suffocating environment that I was in but that was an outlet for me and um, mm -hmm. you know having that also I think of um, I think of how special the Still Nomads crew was mm -hmm. and, you know everyone in the Still Nomads crew and the um, just the, yeah. the power the power of that resistance you know of, of like mm -hmm. it was it was a That's very special cool. time that and what I was and I was so fortunate that I was able to to um, yeah. tap in. Yeah. Right. And I met you, I think, towards last leg of your career, so to speak. And yeah. I remember seeing you at the Pan-African uh, events. And then I remember seeing you at Still Nomads. And one thing, and I didn't know you were going through all this, right? And mm -hmm. obviously, there weren't opportunities for us to have that kind of conversation. But one thing I appreciated about you um, Lumumba, and I'm happy to share this with our listeners, is that you were always very humble. So you came into spaces not like, hey, I'm this footballer, but it was very much like coming in, enjoying the space, interacting with the space, but never from a position of, you know, I'm this person, if that makes sense. Was that something, I wonder, was that something intentional? Did you always want to just sort of sit back and observe? 
No, nah, that that was natural. I I was hurting, you know, like that those spaces in many of the ways was like a was just a saving grace. I was just grateful and to be in there and humbly to 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 listen. I learned so much, you know, just being in those spaces. Um, I can remember like going to Soretti's place and watching Concerning Violence and um, again, it was always the women who were bringing, who were creating these spaces. And, um, I, man, I, I, I just had to, I had to humble myself. Like, who the fuck do I think I am going into a space? And, oh, I'm this footballer. Like, no, like I'm just a, and excuse my language, just a nigger in the eyes of society. You know what I mean? So like, this was mm -hmm. one space where I could just be fucking normal. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. Um, Lumumba, I feel like like what you mentioned about this idea of the power in that resistance and the power in just being, you know, without the outside expectations <laughs> or how people see you out there. Um, and some people talk about how, you know, for Black folk and melanated folk, just experiencing something like just being without those expectations or experiencing joy is, is also an act of resistance, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... And so, which actually leads me to ask, you know, what, what brings you joy? When are you most at yourself and just being? Thanks. That's a great question. I, I would say like, I'm, I'm always, I'm in joy when I'm around my people, you know, like when I, it doesn't matter where I go in this world, whenever I'm amongst um, Africans or people of African descent and ex exchanging culture and learning and just observing interacting that's when i'm i experience joy you know and i'm not romanticizing i'm not trying to generalize and romanticize but that's that really is my passion is is, is mm -hmm. being amongst my people learning from my people being of service to my people and um, i extend that also out with um more broadly to indigenous peoples, you know, peoples that have gone through um, colonial oppression and have their survival stories and their rich histories. Uh, that's when I'm learning. That's that's when I'm um, in a state of joy and a state of bliss. And I would say I could couple that as well. If 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 the sun is shining and there's an ocean, that goes a really long way to me experiencing joy, you know. So mm -hmm. um, when I'm able to express myself um, in a way that I can't seem to naturally do whenever I'm within um, spaces mm -hmm. that are where I am uh, the minority, like that, you know. I, I just I just love to. I find joy in. Um, being uh, amongst my people. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.